no, this has gone wrong. <laughs> I realise now I've chosen the wrong plant. <laughs> Bladderwort, W-O-R-T, but of course you could have W-A-R-T, and that could oh, be quite serious. <laughs> Oh, you must ask it again. That's hilarious. I, do that again. I thought you were throwing in some funny curveball. You're listening to the Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. And welcome to another episode of the Occupational Philosophers, the not so serious business podcast to spark creativity, curiosity, and imagination. And look, as always, we like to kick off with what's caught your curious eye this week because we believe curiosity is at the heart of being a great occupational philosopher. So, John, hello. What's caught your curious eye this week? Hello, Simon. What's caught my eye this week is baking. I have been baking, which is something I've, I never did up until about two or three months ago. Uh, and I've been baking again with my daughter. And I was just curious as how my confidence has grown in quite a short period of time by just trying stuff and practicing and baking things of varying levels of difficulty. So I started in this book with my daughter doing something that was two out of 10 difficulty. I'm now up to a triple layer sponge cake, which is eight out of 10, according to the book, difficulty. Mm. (laughs) So I'm going into the realms of soggy bottoms now. So I was yeah curious about how the confidence builds quite quickly. I'm learning something completely new which I haven't done. I'm quite old. So you don't, obviously, this is about taking chances to keep learning is really important. So I'm just seeing it as an uh, opportunity to learn. <laughs> I'm making mistakes, left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah. But that's okay. Next time, grease the tin. Next time, make sure it's two, two teaspoons of vanilla essence, not two tablespoons of vanilla essence. <laughs> it's completely ruined stuff. So yeah, and it's a slight thought, which is I've just... It's about being human. It's all about failing. So I'm doing that pretty well. I'm being a good human at the minute. <laughs> and it's a, it's a microcosm of what we talk about each week, trying things, experimenting, building your creative confidence and, you know, dealing with soggy bottoms. So I'm impressed exactly. all around. And is this based a little bit from watching the great UK Bake Off? Is that the show or something a little bit like that? Well, there is that. And that's obviously that's a massive phenomenon here in the UK. I, I suspect it's probably watched quite avidly down under as well but no this was the you remember i did the uh advent calendar. ah yeah 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 yeah. so the january advent i one of the things was bake bake something and, and so i did that and then suddenly my daughter said oh can we do that again and it's become a thing so it's quite nice yeah, cool. it's quite a nice Good outcome I've, i have this bonding experience with my daughter over baking so there you go quite sweet and really, that is the warmest <laughs> fuzziest what's caught your eye ever we've done so probably, yeah, what probably is isn't it for me anyway how about you simon well, look, mine, and I'm, I'm saying this with all interest, with no sarcasm at all, just a story I've come across, and that is around uh, dream coaching. And I've essentially read about it happening with Hollywood actors and directors and other creatives. Jane Campion, who's most likely going to win the Oscar for her new movie, she credits it on her last movie, but I'll just read what it is. Helping people unpack their dreams, access uncharted corners of their unconscious and fish out new ideas. Sessions offered one-on-one and as workshops combined somatic and breath exercises with dream exploration, all coded with a layer of Jungian theory. 
So that's a bit expensive. Salvador Dali-esque, isn't it? We spoke about Salvador Dali was very keen on accessing his subconscious. And I thought, what an interesting way to do it. And the people who use this, uh, her name's Sandra Gillingham, Benedict Cumberbatch, Sandra Oh from Killing Eve and Jane Campion, they swear by this, the deepness of the process and where it takes Uh them to. And this is the last little piece. I just want to share with it. And it says, artists are always in front heralding the new and the temptation to repeat the old narratives while being very, very comforting is in the way of truth and growth. Mm. So the coach. Again, you've you've gone very deep and profound. I'm talking about cakes. You've gone into something like that. I mean, come on. We've got to stay light, light, stay light. (laughs) I think I've pivoted this year. I'm thinking of some sort of spiritual (laughs) awakening. (laughs) Long may it continue. You okay, but but John, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes, a really interesting read. I don't think I'll do it justice in this short amount of time. Very exciting episode. We have a, it's a guest episode, and what a delight, John. Who's the curious cat we have on this week? We have a very special guest today, Simon, and I have been genuinely uh, excited about this episode with our guest, as he is, because there's a lot to talk about today. He has been a presenter on children's television. He's hosted his own show for ITV. He's been a co-host of Saturday Kitchen on the BBC, um, guest with James Martin Saturday morning. He's written six books, two of them for children, including one which I know we'll talk to, which is Flip the Switch, which is Achieve Extraordinary Things with Simple Changes to the Way You Think, which I know is going to be a fantastic topic. He's a podcaster with Roots, Wings and Other Things, and more recently, The Humans Podcast, which explores what it means to be human. He's known as the behaviour expert. He's an internationally renowned behaviourist and professional speaker. And I've watched some of this stuff. He's known as the go-to guy, memorable presentations that he brings this topic to life about how to change human behaviour. He's got a list of clients, that's a bit of a who's who, as they would say, of global brands such as British Gas, Philips, Volkswagen. And now he travels quite a lot presenting to organisations, working with over 16 plus years and literally worldwide, engaging, inspiring and upskilling teams. He's the polymath's polymath. He's Jez Rose. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think How I really that? need to be here, do I now? I, mean, is, I don't think I need to. On one side of me, I think, oh, that's lovely. What an incredible introduction. I don't need to be here anymore. You basically said everything everyone needs to know. And on the other side, I think it's sort of bordering on creepy. I mean, you probably know more about me than my own mother does. Don't, don't start this. Don't start Simon off because he reckons the last time we had a guest, he said I was a stalker as well. So look, I'm just, yeah, I just, well, I just research my guests. There's a very fine clinical line between stalking and good research. That's what I say. <laughs> I was getting getting a little nervous thinking of the show notes here. I'm thinking, oh my god, the, the the links we're going to have six books, twenty shows. Yeah, He's five foot eleven. Uh, <laughs> but look, let's kick off, Jez. Welcome to the show. But what's caught your Thanks. curious? I this week. It's lovely to be here with you both. Uh, well, I'm moving house. I have been for what seems like an eternity. It was supposed to be only a short two to three week stopover at, uh, at my mum's house. And needless to say, we, my partner and I have long overstayed our welcome. Um, so, we're, uh, so because I'm moving house, I, and I'm in between houses, 
there's a lot of, you know, what are we going to do with the garden and what are we going to do with this room? And you get this amazing surge of creativity when you forcibly put yourself in a creative space. You know, you've got the, the garden I'm inheriting is literally just overgrown grass with a little bit of woodland at the end. So there is an infinite possibility of stuff to do in there. So you're looking at garden centers and garden programs and catalogs and magazines, of course, out of design, out of necessity, because I don't want my garden just to be half acre of overgrown grass, right? But because the necessity drives the desire to be creative, desires, drives the need to be creative, it puts you in an, a, an incredibly self-rewarding creative space. So what has caught my eye at the minute is, well, let me tell you, I don't think I'm oversharing to say, uh, sheer curtains, um, <laughs> <laughs> heavy drapes, and a swathe of daffodils and crocuses. That's uh, <laughs> that's the sum root of my creativity at the minute. <laughs> And, and well, with that in mind, actually, Jez, so where are you today then? You you mentioned obviously you're not where you hoped you would be. No, absolutely. No, no, I haven't been for quite a few weeks. Well, because of the pandemic, I'm not at all where I hope I should normally be. I mean, I used to spend almost six months of the year in the US and, and certainly traveling over the world. So these kind of Zoom calls mean that in some ways it's super nice i get to spend all my time at home and that's quite nice you know because if i go and work for an hour in america that's three days of my week out just for an hour's worth of work but i enjoy that process you know so but now it's i log on someone says yes we can hear you yes we can see you off you go goodbye and then i just stare at the washing up and think i suppose i should do that now um (laughs) but i'm at my dad's house so i'm in oxfordshire in england which is very pretty very lovely but not where I want to be. (laughs) (laughs) How would you describe what you do? Oh, I hate this question. Um, (laughs) So the polymath thing is interesting because I think polymath, polymath for me sounds a bit like entrepreneur. It sounds arrogant. If somebody wants to describe, I once met somebody at a networking event many, many years ago and I said, oh, what do you do? And she, and she said, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. And I thought, oh, I don't know. You just sound like an idiot. But you know, who would describe themselves like that? But I get it. You know, I, I have had and still have a huge variety of interests, both professionally and personally. And some of them don't last so long, but I'm insatiably curious. And so, you know, if I think, oh, what, what would, what's whittling all about? It's that I'll buy all the stuff and I'll do a whittling course and I'll leave it, you know, it's going to go one of two ways. And halfway through, all my friends are like, oh, is this going to be the one where suddenly we're going to get spoons every Christmas? Or is this <laughs> the one that's just going to get, oh, you remember when Jez did that thing? So when people ask, I say, broadly, I write, I make TV. I speak and I perform. That kind of sums up everything that I do. And within that, there are (laughs) a myriad different aspects. I guess uh, we're always trying to imagine a Venn diagram with this kind of thing (laughs) and trying to see what the sweet spot is. So you were saying, so so the Venn diagram would have the writing, the broadcasting, but is there a a particular sweet spot where you're bringing certain stuff to life or to a certain audience? When you were a child, did you ever have that thing called spirograph where you used to put, yeah, my Venn diagram would look like a spirograph. (laughs) (laughs) Just a load of... (laughs) And there's this Um, and this and this. (laughs) The sweet spot is definitely, is human. What does it mean to be human? It's, It's all about being human. And 
you know what's really strange is that that was not by design it was not engineered i've always been interested in behavior so i studied human behavior first and i studied animal behavior and latterly only recently actually i just randomly asked somebody at work i said you know what does it mean to you to be human what is this we'd had a number of international events that had happened and i think a lot you know at the minute i lose a lot of sleep i think constantly about what's happening in ukraine and what we can do and and what it means to be forcibly displaced and so i asked them you know what does it mean to be human and their response was remarkable this was a 50 year old guy who i'd worked with a long time a client and he said oh i don't i don't know that's a very good question um uh, I, don't, I think I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I was like, oh, okay, well, let me know, because, you know, it's interesting to think about it. I was driving home, and I thought, how do you get to 50 and not know what it means to be human? <laughs> like, you've spent 50 years being human. You don't know what the bloody hell you're doing on Earth. So, so then I thought, I'm going to ask some more people. So I started asking people, and the response was always the same. Like, oh, blimey, Jess, that's a bit deep, or I don't know. What do other people say? And I thought, isn't that amazing that we don't have a defined core purpose you ask people and some people might have thought about it and you guys sound like you're you know you're pretty explorative in in your being and some people say oh you know it's about having meaning in life or i want to help other people or, or whatever so they have a kind of loose core thing but hardly anybody is articulate and so i think that's where everything meets everything i do is about a meaningful life about having some meaning about being human that's fantastic, James, because obviously you're absolutely right. I mean, that's very akin to what philosophers were asking back in ancient sure. Greece. Yeah. Yeah. How should Still we live? Have the what, what is, Isn't what, that yeah. gorgeous? Well, that's, <laughs> that was my next thought is, yeah, it's really hard to wrestle with it, but interesting to do so. Well, my next thought is, based on all those conversations, what came back? Is there a, a statement or something, you know, when you say communication that cuts through and engages people with one simple line and all that type of stuff, what did you, was there something that came out of that and you thought summed it up that's not in a thesis, like in a way that you'd explain hmm. it to a 10-year-old? That's a really lovely question. And it's as interesting as it is tragic, depending on how you look at it. And actually the the thing that was consistent, there may be the sort of average answer, if you like, was to that being human is about living life, which for me just feels very broad, just feels very flat, because at its pathological level, you would live life if you did absolutely nothing. As long as you put water into your body and a bit of food, you're going to live life, right? I mean, I'm reading an amazing book at the minute. I'm a real bookworm. I mean, a book a week. And the book I'm reading in a minute is um, The Choice by Edith Eager. And she talks about her time in concentration camps. Well, they were living life <laughs> on a technical level. So yeah. actually, the, there isn't an answer, Simon, is the interesting thing. is It's as broad as I would say a quarter of the people say, oh, gosh, I never thought about that before. I don't really know and think that that's OK to leave it there. Probably more like half say something along the lines of to live life, to do something meaningful while we're here, yep. which I think is really interesting because the people that tell me that don't really do anything very meaningful. And then maybe the other quarter will say, what do other people say? 
<laughs> okay, they sure. need some inspiration, right? They need some kind of, you know, some they, guidance as to what they, does that question even mean, right? Are they the ones who used to peer across the aisle in the exam hall and say, what's he <laughs> for number 7A? Ooh, existence. But, well, I'll put that those in are the, <laughs> Those are the people. I don't know what the answer means, but it sounds good. That's a very long word. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's, I mean, I'm being flippant and I don't belittle any of those people because. At the, I like to be the cat among the pigeons. I like to ask questions and you know make things interesting, not to intentionally go against the grain, but because I think it makes us ask more questions. It's something I'll talk about a lot today. I think it's fundamentally, I think, an area that, that that's I think the sole solution to a lot of the problems in living a meaningful life that we have in understanding what it means to be human is that we just don't ask enough questions. We just go along with it, and so why would it be that somebody doesn't know the answer to what it means to be human. Oh, Jez, you're, you're perfectly placed in being here then. Uh, a cat amongst <laughs> the pigeons would be exactly how they would have described Socrates, <laughs> the, ga- <laughs> the, the ultimate gadfly. So, yes, good company. You're keeping good yeah. company. <laughs> and, and on the on the questions, I, I often quote you, John, with, with your piece now, a good question does the heavy lifting. And everyone goes, ooh, like in the room, hmm, okay. And I said, well, it's a colleague of mine on my podcast. Uh, and that's how I sort of bring it into the, have you listened? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it's anyway. Got a hashtag. It's got a yeah. hashtag. But I think that, that everyone we speak to always comes back to ask really good questions and be, and be really curious. Now, Jess, being part of an occupational philosopher, as we've been speaking about, is that ability to be curious and look at the world with open eyes. And look, I really loved watching your videos when you're out in nature, and they spoke to me in many ways. One, you know, very uh, engaging style. I love there's some production in them <laughs> as well. I thought, oh, sure. I hope it doesn't look at my YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately I thought I've got to raise the bar. Anyway, that's a side note. But what I love is you said how important it is to engage with nature, but most importantly, be curious about nature. So be curious about the things you see and even simple things like, you know, have yep. your coffee outside, look up to the clouds, grow some seeds, just some really simple things. Now, what are some of the key lessons and like there's not a lot of people i guess that do what you do that talk about nature in such a way so what are some of those key lessons in nature if we really look and if we're really curious what can we find and see that we might be missing out on wow i could do an hour on this simon i'm not kidding um four minutes so (laughs) rush me i think there are come on come on solve it solve it quickly (laughs) solve the problem um sound like every soundbite soundbite Patience, I think, is the one that comes to mind. You know, there's this beautiful, beautiful phrase. It's as old as the hills now, which is grow slow. And it's something that I'm going to do a lot of writing about this week. And there are some videos coming out next week about that very concept, because we are in an age encouraged by the rapid development of technological advancement that encourages us to make decisions quicker than we've ever had to make them before and actually quicker than we're built to. We need to naturally assess and reflect and pull from experience and thought. Whereas at the minute you take Tinder or any of those dating apps where you literally, it's like Canigula, you know, you're like swipe left, right, yes, no, dum, 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 dum. And we are encouraged by those sorts of technologies to make decisions quicker. 
yet nature never does anything quickly. You know, you look at the speed at which nature grows and develops, and there's a reason why that beautiful oak tree takes 50 years to get to that. There's a reason why we have four seasons. You know, I developed last year something called a seasonal change model because I've gone through an incredible amount of change over the last two years in my life, not through uh, engineering. And what I found was that the closer I got to nature, the more I was able to look at detail, you know, literally being on your hands and knees with your hands in soil, you can see things that you'd never see. I wrote about and flipped the switch years ago when I was stood in a town center looking at an ant. And I noticed this at a lamp walking around on the pavement. And I imagined one of those movie scenes where they pull out and they pull out and they pull out and it gets like macro, 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 macro like that. And imagine, you know, looking at this little lamp and thinking, gosh, look how tiny you are, but everything's huge to you. Like that leaf you're carrying is a big thing, right? It's a big deal. But you pull out and then you look at how massive those paving slabs are in comparison to the ant. And then you pull out more and see all these people, which are huge. And then you pull out more and see the town and then the county and then the country. And you think that tiny little ant, that's amazing. So the closer you get to nature, the more you get to learn to look closer, look at detail. And you realize very quickly how much you're potentially missing out on. You know, the equivalent would be saying hello to somebody at work and then goodbye at the end of the day. And you know nothing of the tapestry of their life, their thoughts, their feelings, the things that are going on at home, what they think about X, Y, Z. Or one of the things I often talk to leadership teams about is if you haven't asked your team and the people in your charge, what skills, talents or experiences do you have as a human being, regardless of whether you use them at work right now, then you've already shot yourself in the foot because you could be sat on a pool of remarkable talents and, and skills that just because they're not employed to use them, you have no idea they even exist. So there are a myriad of things, but the seasonal change model, just to sort of end on that, is, is for me huge. It's a way of understanding our relationship with change. We have a very awkward, clunky relationship with change. We're not especially very good at it. We don't embrace it. We naturally resist it. It's normally highly emotive, particularly if it happens to us without our consent originally. And what the seasonal change model shows us is that actually nature makes significant changes throughout life. Every change we enter is pretty much what I call the stage of autumn. So repair, regeneration and harvest. The example I often give to people is imagine a breakup. Uh, like, you know, when you broke up with somebody, chuck out all their stuff, <laughs> happily burn it, shred it, flush it down the loo. There's a lot of emotional repair and regeneration that goes on. Yeah. You then enter a period of winter, which appears like total dormancy. Every change starts with autumn, this kind of repair, regeneration, harvest, then goes through a period where it feels like nothing's happening, but you just have to sit on your hands. And it's the most beautiful lesson that we can learn about patience. So we're constantly pushing. Because I can type on my computer and get information now, because I can type on my computer and get a date now, it doesn't mean to say that that is how life works. It's just a bit of the way that we've made it work. And then out of uh, winter, of course, you get spring, where life starts to grow things start to happen because of the work you've done previously in harvesting repairing regenerating waiting patiently these <clears throat> start to come fruitful and then we enter that period of total abundance of, of summer but the caveat is that if you look at instagram for example you'd think that it is possible to live in total abundance all of your life and it's not and then of course that change model will tip round, go back into autumn, winter. And so we repeat that cycle of change as well. And so I think there's an awful lot. I mean, that's just literally the icing on the cake. 
I think there is absolutely a sort of model for what nature can teach us. In fact, it's a lot of what I'm writing about in the new book. All right. Looking forward to that. Now, I guess the follow-up question, when you go out for a walk and look, I, I lived in the UK for a long time, so I understand this sort of this, this ramblingness and it's, you go for a walk here, it's hot and sweaty and you get attacked by things, you know, so, <laughs> so, yeah, especially over summer, your interaction with nature is m- mostly at the beach and a different thing. But I guess in the frame of when you're in these English spaces, which are so beautiful and quaint and they've got their own energy what what grabs your attention what is there something you always or you look at and you go I love looking for this or I don't know if I've asked the right question I'm just sort of interested behind what excites you when you get out into nature is there something in particular or well I'm a big fan of wildlife because of the fact that humans largely haven't touched it well there is that gorgeous film quote that says uh, i'm going to paraphrase this i might get it slightly wrong but it's the zoos are full and the prisons are overflowing my how the world loves a cage my how the world still dearly loves a cage and so i like to look at wildlife because i like the freedom and the sort of secret life they've got but trees is my go-to normally i'm a big tree fan you know i was listening recently sandy toxvig the broadcaster she just before lockdown sold her house in uh, london and moved out to the countryside she did a program in japan where she was made to made to she engaged with forest bathing uh, which essentially is a sort of fancy word for just, I mean, it's slightly more ritualized in Japan, but it essentially is just standing in a forest. You just look at trees, touch them if you want, but just look at the architecture and infrastructure and the light and the silence and the noise that the trees make, uh, which sounds, I suppose, maybe a little bit woo-woo, but it is remarkable. She said it's the most, she's never felt happier and calmer in her entire life than when she's, uh, she said it was the most remarkable experience that she's ever had. And I I have to agree. I wonder if this leads us in, Jez. You mentioned flip the switch. And I was thinking about, in that, you talk about, obviously, the gap. You talk about this gap that, or part of it is that we have choice. And there's a gap where there's an opportunity to reflect and choose. And it seems like you could put quite a lot in here, couldn't you? There's not just mm-hmm. the immediate stimulus to something. Somebody says something, I get angry, I shout. And mm-hmm. so you go, look, broad, make the gap bigger, choose something different. But as you would see it there, we can have the stimulus of, to your seasonal change model, someone breaks up with me. Right, let's have a gap. Let's slow down. Let's reflect before I take action and move to spring almost. Does that make sense? There's, there's some... yeah consistency the, here that you slow and it's about thinking differently reflecting not sure. just jumping to the next thing and yeah, nature gives a, you that it is about that but it's equally about asking more questions it's about being more actively involved um, in, in that gap in that gap yes yes yeah. because the gap thing is interesting because well let me just qualify something real quick is that i don't believe this is a fairly new thesis right so i'm still expecting fully people to push back and for me to kind of reflect and work out what this definable model is i've had very little pushback so far so i think it's something that people are understanding and certainly engage with the practicality is interesting that comes next but the seasonal change model is not changeable in the same way that the seasons follow a very strict, you can't say, do you know, what? I'm a bit kind of bored with winter. Let's just, we'll speed this up. We'll go, let's just get into spring quicker. 
however equally it or conversely sorry it is not strategic and structured like the natural seasons are you know with pretty much equal in england for example you get equal amounts of spring summer autumn winter but the change is not the same yeah <laughs> broadly i was gonna say um, I'm, I'm slightly disagreeing summer summer last yes. about 10 days but <laughs> well, everybody's so bloody unfair and hard on summer in this country summer gets um, a rough deal doesn't it comes, I, up, really comes along promising everything hey i, I was thinking here up. yeah okay. if you're I, I was thinking here you don't want winter to hurry up and i thought well i know a lot of people who live in your country that <laughs> that do anyway yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah you know you get it? to winter and then they all bloody moan about it oh isn't it cold oh the rain you know, you think you're never happy, you lot. But the point is that with change, your period of abundance could be long. You might be in that for years, could be months. Your period of winter might be as short as a week. If you're in therapy, it could well be maybe actually maybe years where you just have to sit and take stock and just hold on, you know, don't rush stuff. But it's it's very interesting. I have changed my business model for so three businesses and I've changed the model for all of them to grow slow. And it's maybe risky. I mean, I used to be a seven day a week, kind of nine till seven, always working, work, work, hustle, hustle, hustle. And I thought, you know what? There's something in the idea of letting what's going to happen is going to happen. I think we're only so much in control of what we're in control of. So wouldn't it be interesting if I took a real ultimate lesson from nature and grow slow? I like this. Again, we're seeing lots of your work seems to chime with philosophy and philosophers. I mean, you've got the Humans podcast, Jez, sure. that we mentioned earlier, and that seems to suggest you are quite philosophical in your approach to things, that reflective mm. process, that questioning process. You're a bit of a philosopher. Do you take a lead for any, any particular school of philosophy? Uh, obviously, no. Stoic philosophy is one of those ones where you you would quote Marcus Aurelius and that idea that all we have is power over our mind, not events. Yes. And it's our yes. response that dictates our experience. And sure. You know, it's the meaning we attach to that. So is that prevalent in your mind as you come to this this stuff around um, defining what it is to you? you is gonna make me sound arrogant, I think. It might even make me sound a bit pious, but at this stage maybe I don't care. Um shitty You you were worried about being called a polymath earlier. <laughs> Can't so stop you is, now, can we? This is the thing. I'm not a big fan of labels. And this is why it's just I don't want this to sound twee. I don't want it to sound like, oh you god, you're trying to sound I don't know, bougie or something. But so I worked a lot with a sports charity that was wanting to get more kids into sport. And the fundamental problem I have with it, what I you know explain to them is that some kids don't like sport. They don't like what it stands for. They don't like what it is. They don't like running around. I was one of those kids. I wanted to be doing drama or writing. I didn't want to be running around in the cold and the mud. Ironically, now I'm like an avid gardener and you have to drag me in if it's hissing it down with rain, you know, so full circle and all that. But if you label it as sport, you immediately will switch off kids whereas if we can find a way just to make them move it doesn't matter how they're moving or why they're moving because that's ultimately what your goal is right it's not about getting a, an entire country to play professional netball or sports there is a byproduct of that but what you're asking kids to do is move more and exercise so equally i worry sometimes that the idea of philosophy 
and calling yourself a philosopher put some people off because I think still I hear I sort of get a sense that the idea of studying philosophy is like the cop-out degree you know it's the kind of nothingness it's like oh god you know you're gonna go be a surgeon or a philosopher um <laughs> and one of those two drinks a lot more tea and eats a lot more cake as they stare wistfully into the and frankly those <laughs> surgeons should do more work if i had to pick a label definitely stoic you know I mean, my life is i spent about eight years practicing buddhism but my clinical, my, my academic mind struggled with the whole reincarnation thing. And I felt, well, I'm kind of not doing this justice. If I, I can't just take a bit of it and say, well, I'll be Buddhist up until the point that we do reincarnation. And then I can't really believe in that bit because that really fundamentally is the ultimate path of Buddhism. Right. So I thought, OK, you need to. So then I looked at humanism for a little bit. And I probably identified as a humanist for a couple of years. And then I struggled with that because actually all of the things that humanism was set up to do, which was to say, OK, look, we can have kinship and we can have thought and debate without religion, without the belief in a higher power, started to get very, ironically, all the things they didn't want it to be. It started to get the same. It was very anti-religion. It was I started to get involved in debate about religion. And I thought, no, no, no that's not what this is about either. You know, I have the most wonderful array of friends. I have Hindu friends and Sikh friends and Jewish friends and Christian friends and Catholic friends and atheist friends and drug dealers and uh, black friends and brown friends and white friends and every color friends. And they do all sorts of amazing things. I've dominatrix friends. I've got <laughs> doctor friends. I've got literally is the most colorful because, John, Simon, I don't care. <laughs> they are all yeah. human. And yeah, that's the uh, dominatrix religion. Where, where's, where? Can we? Is it that, probably is, that, is a religion for some. Yeah, well, uh, that, that's got a church somewhere, isn't it? But yeah, it's probably underground. Um, <laughs> I would imagine. Yes, very dark. I, th I think that's right, Jez. In terms of as you're saying it, we're less worried about the labels of all of this. I think, but it's nice to sort of think about the ideas and the process sure. that philosophers follow. And that, yeah. as you say, in your mind, is about being deeply curious. I wondered if philosophy is the gap between stimulus and response. That's where it sits. It's just that opportunity. Yeah, to, you know, I, I absolutely think you're right. Way. I think it's interesting, though. I always imagine that these podcasts, someone will stumble across this who won't be a philosopher. They won't identify as a philosopher, you know, and they might yeah. listen. And I think, you know, you don't have to be, you don't even know what a philosopher is to engage in the question, which is when I die and I take my last breath, do I want to look back at everything and think, my God, I wish there was more or look at all of that that I didn't do. Here's something you'll love. He says arrogantly. <laughs> um, so this, this thought came to me really recently. I've written about it a little bit. Imagine for me all of the instruments that you play right now, right? So I want you to think about the many instruments that you play. Most people, on average, two or three. If you're really instruments, might be as many as five or six, right? Then I want you to imagine all of the languages that you speak right now. So, again, some people two, some people four on average. Australians. Then one. I want you to imagine. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which isn't a real language. Um, then I want you to. <laughs> Can I add Australian to my list? That's just bumped me up to three. <laughs> um, then I want you to imagine all of the countries that you visited around the world, right? So you scribble those down. And some of them might be a lot. Oh, by the way, there's a really cool app called Bean, B E E N. It's free. 
and you can add all of the countries that you've been to and it calculates the percentage of the world that you visited. It's, it's just <laughs> wonderful, right? So you realize how little you've seen. So my point is once you've done that and there'll be other topics we could look at. Now, conversely, imagine all of the instruments that you could play, right? So go Google, find a list of all the instruments that exist in the world. Now all of the countries that you that you could visit and now all of the languages. And I also do professions. So think about all of the jobs that you've had throughout your career. And I want you to go right back, you know, think about 13 when you were asked to mow a lawn. That'll do. And then you think about all the jobs that exist. And now you can realize just how tiny you are in the speck of potential. So when people push and they take the mickey out of me for being a polymath and they say, oh, here's another thing that you've done and not carried through or, my God, how many jobs have you had? And I say, look, the potential we have as human beings to achieve, to explore, to do, to think is, I mean, mind blowing. And so you're going to sit there knowing one language and tell me that I've had too many jobs. And you're going to sit there playing two instruments of a list of, do you know what I mean? Like, is yeah. it remarkable, isn't it? What we can achieve. Yeah. It's, I just find it so passionately enlightening. I love that. That's again, that has immediately changed my perspective on that completely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That percentage. It, we're back to, I'm feeling like that ant you were talking about <laughs> earlier. <laughs> and it, was, it was a good metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So look, yeah. I've got a question on all of that then. With, with so much that you do and so much on your plate, and I would say you have a high amount of creative output, and I look at it through that lens. And look, I come from a fine arts background myself, so I like to make things. And I always like to try new things and experiment, etc. What I'm finding, though, how do you stay cool, calm, and creative in all of that? Because I'm, I'm reflecting this week, I just thought, oh, God, like <laughs> I've got so much going on. I, I actually thought I, I'd – and then you sure. become uncreative maybe. So how do you – Sure. Yeah. What's some advice you might have for myself or others, or and you know, because you're on you know television, so you you write and you produce content and you speak and you curate and so all of that stuff. Yeah. How do you do it all so well? Well, I don't know if I do it all so well. That's entirely subjective, and I'm sure I drop the ball <laughs> many times, and I'm sure I produce stuff actually that isn't to my best ability. But and I used to be obsessed with that actually, Simon. I used to be really obsessed about it being perfect. And now I don't care so much. I care passionately about what I do, and I I try a lot, but I'm less worried about the final quality, just partly because of the sheer amount of output that there is at the minute. You know, the content is that is being produced and that we're consuming is remarkable. So I don't think it matters so much. But also, I think if there's a seed of something in there, it will grow and get better over time, and people are naturally a bit more patient with it than I thought. So. Here's how I deal with it. <laughs> I'm basically sponsored by Moleskin. Um, I'm not, <laughs> but I'd love to be. <laughs> but the I have hundreds of Moleskin, and they have you know yeah. projects and chapters and to do lists and all the rest, of it, which is maybe an obvious thing, right? But but that's important, I think, to just kind of get your thoughts down. What I've stopped doing is putting things into my diary and into my phone. So I have to do lists not stuff that's cluttering up my calendar or my phone. Because I found that if I wasn't achieving the things that were on my phone, I'd be out and about and think, oh, that's a great idea. I need to do that. I'll schedule that for next Wednesday. or I'll do that tomorrow afternoon. But life gets in the way, right? You know, forgetting that there's still 50 moleskins with pages of to-do stuff in, right? And if you don't get it done, then I started to feel like I'd not achieved enough or whatever the big shift comes from being kinder to yourself and realizing that 
you need downtime as much as live time. So I'm really strict about starting around about 9 a.m., but it doesn't matter if I don't start at 9, right? And finishing at 5, so I've got switch-off time. Because what I used to say to people was time management is like my big thing. I'm obsessed with time management because we're only here once, right? And so you need to – what I've found is people are amazing – at managing money very very good at making sure they've got enough to pay the rent that they've got enough to save for holiday horrific at managing time always late leaving stuff right to the last minute we're just not very good at that so my partner every day says to me pretty much every day we sort of share it i always forget uh, he's brilliant at reminding me and says something along the lines of uh, what was your best bit of today what was your favorite part of today and I think it's a really wonderful moment every day to stop, reflect and think, what have I done today and what were my best bits, right? It's such a lovely, beautiful moment that I missed out on for years. And it does something after a couple of days. It creates what psychologists would call a pattern interrupt. It literally stops you in your tracks and makes you kind of think, what have I done today? You know, that's really important to celebrate your successes, not just the stuff that you want to get done. So it's a combination of managing time strategically, you know, writing down my to-do lists, ticking them off, all that kind of jazz. And also what I've become much better of, this took many years to get to this for me. I think it's the same for most creative people, is to learn to say no. You learn what your optimum amount of project is. So at the minute I'm writing a book, and I always underestimate the amount of effort, work, time, energy that takes. So I have very little capacity to take on anything else. There's a million and one things I would love to do, at least two new projects a day, right? But that's <laughs> the important of the moleskin because then I can take a moment when I've got a spare 10 minutes or if I'm on a train and I can use that time to develop the projects. So it feels like I'm always creating, always moving stuff forwards. Is it just in that, as you say that, I recognize that as well, just that because you have that deep curiosity and desire and appetite for learning and things that you want to do, that must be really tough. The, the thing of saying mm. what to say no to must be one of the mm. most difficult questions to have to wrestle with. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do I, I, that? The, I the believe self... you have some criteria. You kind of... <laughs> no, no, not at all. No? It's just that I, I pick the things that are right for now because you could do everything now, but it doesn't mean to say now is the right time. And I think only in only with a bit of experience do you learn that actually you know what now now is the right time to do this and that and I can probably pause that for a second and pick up another couple of projects but then I just have a long here's some ideas list at the back of my and when it feels right to pick those up I do and there's a guy called Derek Sivers you might have heard of him he's a uh, interesting cat done a bunch of TED talks and uh, sold his business CD Baby, and he's got a really nice, interesting story worth looking up. But he gives it, if I don't say, hell yeah, but he exclaims it a bit more, he says, I'm not going to do it. If it's not a 10 out of 10, he just goes, and look, he doesn't uh -huh. have to say yes to these things, but he says, if it's not like a sure. full 10 out of 10, I'm, I'm not doing it. So that's his way of, and he's a creative guy producing stuff all the time. So that's his, you know, if it brings you joy in that moment, bang, that, that's your thing. I can relate to that. I think that is the underlying cornerstone of the decision-making process is, do I love the idea of this? Or is it that I like the idea at some point, but that it's not quite right now? If it's, oh, I'd love to do that at some point, it instinctively doesn't feel like it's the right time to do that now. It goes on my big list and I'll develop it and whatever. 
because I've pushed stuff through so much in the past and then actually regretted it because thought actually that needed more time to be nurtured to be good I mean the human podcast was a classic example it was it came out of frustration I needed to vent and air this lack of answer that people had and to openly explore what does it mean to be human what do we all think about that and it needed more time really to develop that but we were honest at the beginning and said look we're just doing this as a test as a podcast but it really gripped an audience you know there was a really healthy audience worldwide that listened to that so the phase two of that the where do we take that project now is bubbling away in the background but i think it's sometimes okay just to run with something it's just that you know as curious people or creative people or overthinkers uh, which i'm definitely an overthinker can sometimes get carried away with doing you know, there's a dangerous spot with confidence and overthinking slash creativity and when those two collide it's like you know, everyone around you is like drowning in waves of activity <laughs> and like nonsense and creativity right Okay, Jez, this is one of our thought experiments, which we like to drop in every episode, which is a chance for us to expand our minds and and stroke our chins and consider the big questions of life and <laughs> things like that. And so like uh, we have, um, <laughs> like philosophers, and with questions in mind, we have some readers or rather listeners' questions, not readers. I don't know Ooh. what they're reading, <laughs> but they might be listening. And we'd love you to be an agony uncle for a few moments and help... <laughs> Help our listeners with some of their thorny problems, okay? So, okay. Um, Simon, I think you've you've got a question there from uh, Albert. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the questions came in far and wide when we advertised you were coming on our show. And this is from Albert in Lower Diddle Compton, which is near Bath in the UK. And his question is, Jez, I have a bladder wart and wonder if I should see a doctor or a horticulturist. Oh, that's a brilliant question. Well, I suppose it depends on whether the bladder wart is preventing a decent flow of urination, because if it's pushing on the bladder or the urethra to the point that they can't urinate properly, then... <laughs> no, this has gone wrong. <laughs> I realise now I've chosen the wrong plant. <laughs> bladder wart, W-O-R-T, but of course you could have W-A-R-T, and that could be oh, quite serious. <laughs> oh, you must ask it again. That's hilarious. I, do that again. I thought you were throwing in some funny curveball. No, well, that was the intention. This is the, from what <laughs> That's I'm, got somewhere what completely I'm, different. I understand it's the, the bladder wart, the, the plant, maybe. Or the, <laughs> the aquatic plant. The aquatic right? plant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Ask me the question again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we ought to change the pronunciation sign. Bladder word. Oh, bladder word. Like okay. it word. My, yes. my nasally Australian. Okay. Yeah, my nasally. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Well, maybe, maybe we just go to our next, oh, next question, John. I think we'll go to our next question. Yeah. <laughs> but just a little bit on bladder word. They, what is uh, that? Are you recording? Oh, we're keeping this. I think this, we keep we? this. Yeah, I think we keep <laughs> this. But just for uh, <laughs> they have submersible floating carnivores that use little air sacs to float when they yes. are blooming, and they drift underwater like seasonal submarines and eat tiny invertebrates. Yes, that's right. That suck into they drift, their bladders. They? They're not rooted with a vacuum. Beat that Venus flytrap. So, uh, so what was the question? What did he have a problem with? I have a, I, I probably <laughs> said it wrong. I have a bladder wart and wonder if I should see a doctor or a horticulturist. Yeah. You went doctor. 
Oh, very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great. Very funny. Very funny. I like it. <clears throat> John, this is from... Uh, Jez, this is from Josie in Hobart, Tasmania. She says, I've watched your TED Talks, Jez, and in one you hold a squirrel, and in another you hold a balloon, and then you just chuck them away. What's that all about? And what happened to that squirrel? <laughs> Poor little fella. <laughs> Let, let's do, let's do the important bit first. The squirrel uh, was gifted, so he's living a lovely little life. He's still alive. Uh, he's living a lovely life in South Carolina in America. So that's a gorgeous, happy ending. So the prop thing is something I've done for years. It started entirely contrived. A lot of my work has very, very specific moments of comedy and lightness and structure. And I don't like to talk about it too much because it sounds really contrived and, you know, people will laugh and see things go wrong. But almost everything I do is thought out and scripted and apart from this. <laughs> um, so the, the use of props is... Yeah, <laughs> the use of props is literally to grab and maintain somebody's attention, because uh, so my the most commonest one I use is a cat basket. So if I'm introduced <laughs> at a keynote presentation or as a host, sometimes I walk on with a cat basket. I'll put the cat basket gently down to one side. It's got a towel over the side, uh, you know, so the cat can't see it and freak him out. There's nothing in it, and I'll do my presentation every now and again. I'll sort of take a sip of water and just kind of check on the cat basket and then go back. And then right at the end, I will say, "Oh, now obviously." You're probably all wondering what's in there. And I'm looking at my watch and I think, oh, we haven't got time. Oh, that's a shame. Well, maybe next time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's been lovely hearing. And so then I take the cat basket off. And it's the exact reason that, you know, this uh, this person is asking about. It keeps your attention the entire time because you're going to listen to me because you want to know what the squirrel is or what's going to happen with the balloon. <laughs> so it's just a very clever psychological tool to ensure that I maintain your attention because nobody knows who the hell I am. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, now <laughs> our final one. And this is from, uh, let me see. Hasn't given a first name, so I'll just make sure I've got it right. Now, my wife says my wardrobe is very drab and needs some colour and style. She said I need to be a bit more Jez Rose in exclamation mark. <laughs> what does this mean? Any advice? And it's from Mr. Macron in Paris. I'm not sure if it's the two we would think, but, yeah. So... <laughs> I don't know. I only have two styles. One is very smart. So I, when I'm at work, I follow the maxim that I should try to be the best dressed person in the room. Because, again, this will sound arrogant, but it's not. You know, it's strategic. The attention is supposed to be on me and I represent my thoughts and ideas. But I also represent me. And because I'm not famous, I have a reputation to establish and maintain while I'm with them but many often times I'm also representing a brand you know when you ask a keynote speaker or a host to come into a conference for example you are asking somebody to represent your values and your vision and your brand and all the rest of it so you, the responsibility is quite huge sincerely so my suits are all tailored by the most amazing tailor here in the UK I've worked with him for years uh, designed them all myself every single one of them is different they all have different elements to them they've all got six buttons on the cuffs that's kind of my thing with a contrasting final uh, stitch if you should know uh, they're all high waist trousers I don't wear a belt I wear braces all the time I wear braces today in fact oh there you um, go it's <laughs> uh, flash it's flash John and Simon and so and then my other stuff that I wear is so I either look really really smart or like a Victorian farmhand because I just wear <laughs> high waisted trousers and 
Great casual. So there's no in between. You either get me scruffy or, or very smart. <laughs> Can I just add at this point that for listeners who will see Jez through uh, his website, very dapper, uh, lovely styled moustache. In fact, I showed a picture to my daughter this morning. I was looking on your website and she said, who's that? And I said, that's Jez Rose. I'm going to talk to him uh, later today. And she said, he's got a lovely moustache. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> that's, that's, that's my Let daughter, pe- 10 years old. She went, that's a, that's a nice moustache. <laughs> She's got great style. Um, <laughs> Loads of people comment on that. If it was my choice, I'd get rid of it. I just I find it sort of a bit annoying. It's another thing to do, but it really does get it gets attention. It's not why I did it, but people seem to remember me, if not for anything else, just for the moustache. And it gets so so many people. I think it's one of the reasons that I keep it is not for the remember me things. Plenty of other things I'm sure you'd remember me for, but I break enough stuff when I'm at work. So I think that's one of the things that people remember me for a lot. But it gets people talking in the street. I pass them and they'll comment. I have people sort of say, oh, I love that. And I think, isn't that wonderful? That just something so trivial. <laughs> a bit of hair, on, a bit of hair on your lip. And uh, hey, look at that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jez, we're a not-so-serious business podcast. We're trying to distill some of the levity and lighthearted chat into something that might be construed as useful for individuals, teams, organizations. You work a lot with organizations now, and I know you work with CEOs, leaders, but teams as well. And that's about how they can understand what they do, how they can change for the better, how they can improve the way they do things. But in terms of helping individuals, organizations, teams be more curious, creative, and imaginative, as is the theme of this particular podcast, maybe start with individuals. What might be some of the thoughts or ideas you might sort of give individuals that would help them sort of become more like Jez Rose. <laughs> now you've put uh, the pressure well, on. That's yeah. <laughs> a good point. I would say don't be like me. You know, that's that's no. the point, isn't it? Is that well, that's the point, is that you should be the best version of you, not the best version, not a poor version of somebody else, right? So a better question then is gosh, how do you get people to be the best version of themselves creatively? Yeah. Is it I want to answer that in a really easy way, but I can't help but want to answer it in a slightly deeper way because I honestly believe that there are two ways you can answer questions like that, aren't there? One is something simple, but that won't necessarily make a difference. But the other thing is I, I sincerely believe people just look in totally the wrong place. And I think it starts with authenticity. I think it starts with, and you have to be vulnerable in order to experience true authenticity. So in order to be creative you know i've run so many creativity workshops over the years it's not my main bag it's not what i do but invariably i get asked to do a number of different things and the 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 client's expectation is that you'll get 300 people in a room and go okay make them creative make them do creative okay we want them think differently and they're like okay yeah great we'll just do that and actually it's a process it's a journey and I think it starts with asking more questions. I think that is the cornerstone to it all. You just need to ask more questions. Don't believe everything you read in the newspaper. It's not about being conspiracy theory. It's about saying, okay, where, where's that information from? When they say that statistic, where's that statistic from? And who said that? And why is that? And it's not about intentionally going against the grain. It's not being a spanner in the works. It's just about asking more questions. And the more you ask, the more you learn. And actually, the more questions you ask, you invariably, by default, get to become you get to be an agent of change. You get to find solutions to the problems that you, you didn't know you had. 
one of the things jez that i noted in my stalking uh, sorry research uh, was li- listening to your <laughs> color of my bathroom cre- blinds <laughs> <laughs> yeah blue slight tinge of magenta the um, there was an episode on creativity clearly I, I wanted to dip into that and you said a great quote for me i thought captured a lot which was too often big creativity overshadows little creativity mm-hmm. and how as individuals teams organizations you could you could argue across the piece all too often we're looking at the big examples of creativity the artists yes. the sculpturists the inventors the innovators all of this and actually there's opportunity to really make a difference in our own world and sphere of influence as it were on a different scale but nonetheless just as important so i thought that was a yeah. really nice quote that again comes into the heart of this which is what can we do if we're not michelangelo well, leonardo da vinci sure what's and our, what's the, you, the understanding you don't need to be michelangelo either or da vinci you know the, the within your sphere of influence what if i mean it's all starts my creativity workshop starts with what is creativity because there's no point running a workshop about it if you don't know what it is. But more importantly, I sincerely believe that creativity is subjective. So the better question is, what is creativity to you? And if I end up with 300 different answers, that's equally as important as it is to have a group collective, because I don't think a group collective is important, because then it just suppresses an individual's creativity. It doesn't necessarily connect with that. So you're right. If you know creativity could, for you could be in your home office, how can I make this space work differently? Not necessarily better, not necessarily more efficiently, but you know, how can I make it work better or differently? Now, building on that, thinking around, because when groups of people get together and interact to build off each other and bring ideas into the world, and there's the thinking around, you know, best creativity happens asynchronously, asynchronously, I should say, or together. And I'm a huge fan of what we can achieve when we collaborate and build on each other's ideas. But just looking, I guess, through the lens of your world, for teams wanting to build, bring in that different way of thinking, be open to, you know, serendipity, be open to more options, be more curious. What are some things or is there maybe one key thing you think this would be a nice thing to focus on? Jez, if you want a shorter question, just ask. <laughs> I, I've got into a bad habit of uh, doing a, a little thesis. Get to the end, William. <laughs> I was just going to ask, could you repeat the question? Um, I've forgotten it. <laughs> How would you encourage creativity and curiosity in teams? Oh, thanks, John. Well, that's a nice question. I'll answer that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it starts with two things. One is group creativity and one is individual creativity so the first thing i always ask teams to do is to write down on a post-it note other branded sticky notes are available what it is that gets them up in the morning why do they come to work where's the fire in their belly what what is that what's the drive and that could be not work it could be hinged around a particular thing a product or a, a pillar for for the organization and I ask them to stick it all on a wall and then have a little read of everybody's and they can add to that if they want to, because they might read someone else's and think, oh, God, no, that's that's a brilliant thing that I'm going to adopt that. that. I think that's a better thing. And so then invariably, if you've got 100 people in the room, you might end up with 140 post-it notes on, on the wall. And that's OK, too. You can have two. So what that does is that what you start with is a kind of inspirational swill you know well why do we do what we do Where, where's the kind of that's for me sparks the fire of creativity and then individually i think it's important to think about uh sorry so that's individual sorry 
And then collectively, it's important to think about why we do what we do together, where those exciting things lie and what is it that inspires you, excites you, or lights the fire in your belly about what you do collectively as a team. And some of those will be overlapped, but you do end up with many unique answers to the first one. So I think that's the starting point always. You've got to have some sort of energy, some sort of inspiration in order to find creativity and in a forced environment, because sometimes it it just comes. You know, I mean, I'm writing a book and it's no good me. I, I do. I do schedule writing time, but I don't know the percentage, but I don't know, maybe a quarter of the time I will move that writing time and think I'm just not I don't have anything to write right now. I have no inspiration. I want to do something else. Writer's block is a real thing. Well, it's not just writer's block. It's creative block, right? You can't put somebody in the room and say, okay, quickly, you need to do something now. Uh, That's okay if that's what your profession is. But if it's not, you need to find the energy to do it. I'm really struck by the idea of energy, that you need almost fuel coming into the Mm -hmm. environment to then create the fire. You know, every fire of creativity needs components Mm -hmm. like oxygen and needs a fuel source and heat. And I I love that kind of metaphor of, okay, where's the fuel coming in here? Mm -hmm. We're all sat there. Mm -hmm slumped in our chairs there's no energy there's no fuel coming in to any group creative process but of course we could find that individually as well couldn't we just for our own passion and enthusiasm for something that becomes the fuel sure yeah lovely and if you're a leader then in an organization and almost on every global survey what do we want in our people we want creativity it's right up at the top of the list and whether people understand what it is or different definitions what can a leader do to create that fuel or that environment where this this type of thinking and behavior thrives you've asked the wrong question to the wrong person and i'll tell you why i have quite controversial views on leadership oh perfect <laughs> and what what <laughs> what good leadership is because i believe the majority of people get it wrong and i know where it started it started with leadership models because people wanted to choose a camp to be in and Myers-Briggs has a lot to answer for and all these other <laughs> personality testing things that are a load of tosh. So here's the thing. I think it's the wrong question for leaders to ask. I get the context in here, but I can't help but just push against that a bit because I think the responsibility is not for a leader to have creativity necessarily. The responsibility of a leader is to – really the golden thread of leadership is to get other people to want to do something differently. Once you've done that, you're home and dry. The rest is really easy. So I think the responsibility of a leader is to instill passion and to be the energy, to be the fuel, to drive Mm. the inspiration in the creativity. Where the challenge, and this is why, and I know it sounds a bit twee and I hate to come across as difficult, but, but I think it's really important point. If you give leaders the responsibility, the charge of creativity, invariably for many people gives them gives many leaders the feeling that they have to have that dominance that action that i don't know how to articulate it that that, that they have to give that they have to be the creativity and therefore remove it from the those in their charge and leadership is hugely skewed a lot of the time because the responsibility that leaders feel to have all of the answers all of the time and to take people now taking people is different to leading people and to the caveat here just to sort of drive my point home which i hope makes sense is that i hate the term manager and i try always to get people to understand the difference between manager and a leader because the definition the dictionary definition of manager is to cope 
and like to manage is to cope. I mean, can you imagine having a title as a manager and you wake up in the morning, you go to work and you say, okay, darling, I'll be home later. And <laughs> she shouts down the stairs and says, well, I hope you have a good day, darling. And he turns and he looks wistfully and says, well, I, I just hope I cope. <laughs> and you think, well, what a way to start a career, right? And I'm being a bit flippant, but it's true. If you're a leader, if you're part of the leadership team, that's a very different psychological slant to I'm a manager. A manager is just firefighting, it's just coping. Leader, very, very different emotional stance. So I don't want to be, you know, I don't, don't want to intentionally kind of destroy stuff. I'm not trying to be different. But I, I honestly believe that the secret to creativity and leadership, he says with inverted commas, is to better understand the people. I, I honestly don't think being more creative as a leader is a problem. The problem is in not understanding the people in your charge, is in... I mean, the amount of leaders I speak to, and they don't even have a list of all of the names of the people in their charge. And next to those names, the thing that reinforces those individuals. They don't even know how to reinforce individuals on an individual basis. I still go to conferences and there's a generic bottle of champagne given away to people for being customer service of the year or something. No regard as to whether they drink champagne, whether they even drink alcohol, what their better reinforcer would be. I speak to so many women and it will be the same for men too, but you know, there is a bias that I speak to so many women in work who the greatest reinforcer would be if they could go home work from work an hour early to pick up their kids from school or to have an extra hour from school. Well, that over a bottle of champagne. So do you see what I mean? Is that that, that this problem or this desire to be more creative in leadership is the wrong question. There are better, more important questions and more important areas that we need to be focused on. I'm sorry. I've got ranting. No, it's good. Sorry. No, it's great. That's a great answer. <laughs> Okay, it's time for a rapid fire round. John, fire away. Okay, Jez. One thing you couldn't do with without <laughs> You've got go. one thing to do, John. Just one <laughs> thing. Just just read the words. Do you, know when the it's do you know when it's written down wrong and you think I should have edited that because I'm just gonna keep reading it. <laughs> All right. Keep... What's one thing you couldn't do without in your life at the moment, Jez? Uh my partner, Mr. Adorable. What's a guilty pleasure? Oh, gosh, um, a new notebook. <laughs> Perfect. Moleskin. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> we are building the Occupational Philosopher's Manigesto. Mm. Uh, what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included? Oh, come on. This is supposed to be a quick fire thing. How am I supposed to? I mean, it's bad enough getting me to do one word answers. This is really hard. <laughs> What one thing should be in the man again? Ask more questions. Perfect. Right. Is there a book we should be reading? Other than mine. Of course. Of course. That's <laughs> <what you're talking. laughs> of course. And then uh, again, yeah. really difficult. My professional library, because I, I, know, I know this because we packed it up when I moved house, is over 3,000 books. So this is really difficult for me. Oh. But the one that I think everybody should read is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl. Mm. Final one. Jez, you're being taken in your twilight years into a retirement home and they're walking you down the corridor into the residential lounge and the nurse guides you in and says, hello, everybody, here's Jez. He's, how would you like to be introduced? Unpredictably aggressive. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, that was unpredictable <laughs> and slightly tinged with aggression, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's I, a very I, I unique answer. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe my, I'm a bit more shocked that that was the first thing that came to mind. Um, I, well, because I've got this thing that I think in old age, I'm either going to be in just bloody miserable, like, beyond miserable or annoyingly happy so i think the i think the nurse would say this is jez and and he's not putting it on he really is this happy to still be alive now jez what are you up to next what's the next big sort of exciting thing on the horizon Oh, I'm glad you said exciting because I was about to say urinate and just refill my water because <laughs> um, I like to keep things real, Simon. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> blew it in, blew it out, but, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing a book. It's about change and our relationship with change. And it's a bigger project than I thought, but it's fun. I'm really, really enjoying it. There's some TV stuff bubbling away in the background. Uh, TV commissioning at the minute is very slow. But uh, the big thing really, I suppose, is moving house. So I'm hoping... It's next week, so probably by the time this is edited and goes out, I hopefully will all be moved in. And I'm starting to record creating the garden, but also creating a space indoors with houseplants. That, uh, so using nature, ch- charting the change, the changing environment and my relationship with that, and hopefully pulling some really important lessons for people, giving people some inspiration as to how to engage with nature to create spaces that help create change. Lovely. And Jez, where can we find you? How can people connect with you, find out more about you and what you're doing? Where would we, I don't uh, want you to look? keep finding me, John. This is the point. <laughs> John, you it? can piss off. I thought this was personally. the agreement, right? <laughs> Show's over. I'd come and do your podcast. Get out of Get it all um, out, right? It's okay, just right. Get it. Maybe we should get this out there. Get out of my um, yard. I hate to say it, Jez, but I think me and Leslie are going to see you next week. I think we're going right. to see you. <laughs> the man at your window is me. You can uh, get me on social media at that Jez Rose. Uh, the website's jezrose.co.uk. And look, here's a thing I don't normally do, but I'll do it for you. The book, so Flip the Switch, was didn't do very well to begin with. It was in the WH Smith bestseller list or bestseller, whatever that is, chart thing for a couple of weeks. But it wasn't like an overnight sensation, but it's done very well over the last kind of three years. It's kind of found its audience and... So if you've got listeners that haven't already read it, uh, yeah, I feel sorry for them. Um, so what I'm going <laughs> to – I'll give you a discount code. So go to jezroseshop.co.uk or just find the shop on jezroseshop.co.uk. If you want a copy of the book with – I think it's free postage or £2 off or something like that, I forget. I'm happy to sign it for you. You don't have to. You use the code HUMAN, H-U-M-A-N, in the shop, and uh, you can get a discount, and that's uh, – it's kind of semi-exclusive for you two. And if you don't like it, you can give it to a least favourite child um, so everybody can. <laughs> and look, I've never seen anyone who doesn't enjoy receiving a book as a gift as well. There's something about you give this physical yeah. thing in your hand and there's like, oh, this is, it, it's a thing. So uh, a colleague, someone from work, your boss, whoever it may be, it's, it's, a sure. nice, it's a nice thing to do. Simon, you raise a really good point. There's two things that I think are the best gifts ever. Like forget chocolates and wine and all that kind of nonsense when you get invited to a dinner party. And even if you don't get invited, you know, if you just turn up and anyway, but so like John, give the the book is a great thing. <laughs> yeah, John. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even if you forcibly force your way in with a bar <laughs> through the back door, but plants. So in the last house, I'm replicating. I'm going to teach you how to do it in this new house because loads of people went nuts over this when I put it on social media. And I didn't think it was that amazing. This, a theme in my life is that the things that I'm like, well, I'm not going to be interested in that. Everyone's all over. 
So I created these little plant pods. They were made out of logs. I won't go to the boy now, we haven't got time, but effectively there were these things that hung on the wall, little test tubes in, in logs with cuttings of plants in. So I had this, I don't know how many there are, like 80 cuttings of plants. And the rule was when you came to my house is that you bought a cutting from one of your house plants or a plant that meant something to you. And we swapped it for one. So you went home with one of mine and I had one of yours. And so it means that now I'm in a position where almost every single plant in my house has a story behind it and is linked to somebody. And I've got plants that have been grown on. So when the cutting roots, I then pot it up and it grows into a plant. And I can say that there, that there is a daughter plant of a plant that Judith Kay gave me that she got 40 years ago from her mother. This plant here, this is a cutting from what my grandmother gave me that she had for 70 years. So all of the plants of a story, isn't that just like the wonderful way to yeah. kind of connect through plants, through nature? I, yeah. I do like that. Simon, I better not tell him I've got artificial grass in our backyard. <laughs> no, don't tell Just me. bring a bit of plastic, uh, <laughs> which will... Right. I've got artificial lawn, patch of it anyway, that still grows weeds. <laughs> so look on that, Jez. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And look, we appreciate you've you've got a really lot nice. on. So if you to give us your, your time, energy, humour and you know, insight... It's been great, and I know John and I really appreciated it, our listeners as well. So, look, thanks so much. Yeah, great. It's been thanks, an absolute Jess. pleasure. I'm really, really grateful for being asked, and I hope it's been of some use. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thanks. John, that was a pretty great show. Wow, what Jess, what a polymath, even though he doesn't like that. Uh, what, what, what an inspirational cat, hey? Yeah, I really enjoyed that as ever he had some fantastic insights he's quite deep thinker as we would expect on such a show but really <laughs> nice that he's able to uh, bring levity and lightness to it but then actually sort of real zone in and nail some real wonderful bits of wisdom so yeah very enjoyable what were your takeaways from today so now look it's been a 12-hour show so i'll be really quick okay i really like this idea of grow slow so just a little bit of patience with patience, especially when we're solving problems, it's okay to it's okay to go a little bit slower. And I like this one, and this is, I guess, my own note. But if you're stuck, ask a question. Like, don't sort mm. of yeah. So we'll ask a how might we question, or you know, just ask some more questions. And then uh, creativity needs fuel, energy, inspiration, input, teams. So keep up with the fuel. What about you, John? What yeah. are your ones? Yeah, well, echo some of that. I mean, questions wise. I just like that very simple question of saying, look, what was the best bit of today? You know, having that moment to ask a question that reflects on what's brought you joy or what you've been proud of has been something that's been successful and celebrate that. So it is a lovely question to build into daily, weekly practice. So that that was a good reminder. I love the seasonal change model. So yeah. I look forward to hearing more about that through Jez and his new book. But the idea that Every change starts in autumn. There's some sort of things where it unravels and then you go into some sort of period of reflection, hibernation, think about things differently, and then you spring forth and suddenly then you come into the abundance of summer. It's a lovely, lovely metaphor. Yeah, just following that natural order of things and letting things play out over those seasons and accept that it's going to be that way. So that was that was lovely. So look, that's us, John. So look, as always, we would love for you to give us a rating 
And look, I know when you say that, you go, yeah, yeah, whatever. And But look, it's great because it uh, lets other people know about the show. Tell your friends as well. Thank you to everyone who's listening uh, all over the world, uh, all over the States, uh, all over Europe. So thank you for France, Germany, Hungary, Illinois, Wisconsin, California, Florida, New Jersey, all of those great spots. And as always, John, as always. Stay curious, make stuff, have fun, play more and date life.